When I think of definitive Deep Space Nine episodes, this is one of the technically three that usually come to mind. Really two. This one and the two-parters surrounding Homefront. To be clear, I don't mean like the best episodes. I don't mean like the episodes that are super awesome or whatever or enjoyable or give me a lot to think about, but they really help explain in in like a, a cohesive episode why it is I like Deep Space Nine so much. Now, I've heard some people say that both of these episodes, the Homefront duology and Maquis Part 2, are about how the Federation is crap or the Federation is a mess or whatever. And I've heard some people say that it's just, you know, them trying to be too dark, you know, trying to make the, uh, the thing darker. And this is definitely a darker work. I'm not going to try to deny that. But I don't agree with the... I don't agree with the reasoning. I don't agree with the, the, the net resultant of that idea. To me, what I find about these episodes that makes them so definitive is it examines some more nuanced look at the Federation. Too often, in my opinion, even in shows that are fantastic, you know, it shows, you know, even in original series, even in TNG, both of which have truly phenomenal episodes, I feel like the Federation as, a, as an organization is too often just the good guys who are the good guys. They're, they're the good faction, right? And they've got super advanced tech, and they don't have to worry about things like trade or economics or infrastructure or resources or details or anything. And that's not very believable, that's not very fleshed out, that's not very realistic. Functionally, the Federation kind of comes across as a race of hats. I know that doesn't quite fit. I would say planet of hats, but that fits even less. But you get my point. But these episodes, and several things in, in Deep Space Nine, help add layers to the Federation. Some of those are dark, some of those aren't. But it makes it a more believable structure, which I do like. I don't need to see people being, in, you know, being eaten or interrogated in, in you know, uh, agony booths or anything like that to add more fleshing or uh, more fleshing out or depth to something I like. You can just have something that has more uh, gradient gradient to it. And I mention that as well because the most interesting thing about this episode is not the Maquis to me. I started thinking about that. The Maquis, I kind of talked about this over in Voyager already, but the Maquis have always felt like something that none of the writers of all three shows ever really knew what to do with. We do see some good Maquis episodes. In fact, I bothered to jot down a few that came to mind right off the top of my, my head. Now, I don't remember all these names of these episodes, but over in Voyager, uh, we had you know the Caretaker episode, um, Worst Case Scenario, uh, there's the one about, it's towards the end of season one where the Maquis have to acclimate to the Federation crew, which was okay. There's the Taurus has to deal with the Maquis problem, which is a good episode. There's also the Maquis mind control episode, which is in season seven, I believe, and is absolute garbage in my opinion. But I mention this because those five episodes were the only episodes where the Maquis actually mattered in Voyager. Now, you might ask, why is that relevant? Well, because I've come to the conclusion, and we'll see if this remains true as I go through DS9 and when I eventually get there in TNG, that the Maquis are always the least interesting thing in any story they're in. 
Let's look at those episodes I just mentioned over on Voyager, right? Caretaker, well, the Maquis are one of the most irrelevant aspects of that story, overall speaking, so point made. Worst case scenario, whose core central point was that the Maquis adapted so well that there was no need for there to be a difference, and you know the whole holodeck simulation Seska thing was the main thrust of it. Um... The acclamation episode, which I, I don't actually care for, but that was mostly about how Tuvok has no idea how to deal with people in any kind of adaptable scenario. Uh, we've got the Taurus episode, which is all about Taurus, and we've got the mind control episode, which is all about Tuvok. So even in those episodes, good and bad, the Maki were still not exactly the most interesting thing in them. Which brings me to this episode, of course. Sorry for rambling a little bit. This episode is a fascinating insight into Guldicott, into the Federation, and into the moving dimensions of Cardassian politics. The Maquis are not part of any of that. I mean, they're there, right? I mean, they're part of the story. I'm not trying to argue they're not. There's just, like, nothing really to be said about them. Now, I also want to mention two other things regarding this episode. Now, unfortunately, I simply do not have the level of resources on DS9 that I do on TNG. I, I, nothing uh, that I will ever cover on this show will ever have as many resources and behind-the-scenes information as I have on TNG. It's just been covered too much by too many people for too many years. By contrast, I have, like, two things for DS9. I've got that book right there, and I've got that book right there, and that's it. That's all I've got, uh, other than online sources, of course, which... Eh. Um, so that leaves me with a, a, the, the understanding that I can't say as much behind the scenes as I prefer to when it comes to these things. But what I do want to say is that Ira Stephen Bear wanted to do this kind of story for a while. Now, I mention that because as I, from my perspective, I've already mentioned, I believe in it's, it's an episode that's coming out for you in the future. In season three of TNG, we see, uh, as, and we talk about how Iris Stephen Bear was brought onto the show and basically left almost immediately for a lot of reasons, but one of the stated reasons was because of frustration with what would eventually be termed the Roddenberry Box, the limitations on storytelling and writing about that. And I find that to be fascinating, and I've always gotten the idea that uh, Bear always wanted to do more, just more with the Federation, more fleshing out, as I mentioned earlier. And... I feel like this is the beginnings of that. Remember, Section 31 hasn't even been invented yet from a real-life perspective, an out-of-character perspective. And I feel like this is kind of gearing towards that eventual movement and adding those additional dimensions to the Federation as a concept. The other thing I want to mention, though, is that this is the first time that the writers have been okay with portraying Ducat in a positive light. Now, I want you to remember that. I don't have as 100% concrete evidence about this as I prefer to have on my show. And Lord knows I've already screwed up by saying one wrong thing about DS9. I don't want to add any more to that list. But there is a narrative out of character that makes perfect sense if you look at Gold Ducat's story arc and character arc throughout the whole franchise. I mean, spoiler alert, he's going to be in Season 7. I don't think that's a big spoiler. He's, this is DS9. This is the recurring characters show. So, Ducat's story arc from Season 1 to Season 7, out of character, there's a narrative that makes perfect sense and fits the evidence, which may or may not be true. 
But I mention this here because this is the first time the writers, and again, important, have agreed to try and showcase more, uh, more layers to Dukat's character. That's important because Mark Alemo is a very charismatic actor who always had his own interpretations of his character. I've actually mentioned this before. In two previous episodes, Mark Alemo literally acted as though Gul Dukat was not the bad guy of the episode. And that gets across in his performance, and thus we have, ironically, an unintentionally more nuanced character than we already would have had. This, then, is the writers getting on board with that idea, liking what they saw, and deciding to intentionally add more nuance to his character. You with me? This leads to basically, I'm just, this isn't really spoilers, this basically leads to more and more, for lack of a better term, graying out of Dukat's character, from him being less and less of the I am the pure evil that he was originally intended to be. Dukat was originally written to be the bad guy with no subtlety or nuance to him whatsoever, and because of this unique combination of circumstances, um, Mark Alemo's acting, the approach by the showrunners uh, to, to the storytelling in general, and of course the, uh, the back-end style of lore, uh, lore development and adaptable and uh, that's the word, uh, improv storytelling that they have going on in DS9, this kind of worked. This kind of thing wouldn't have worked on, say, Babylon 5, because all of this would have been planned out originally, and then Dukat would have just been pure evil the whole show. But since they didn't have everything planned out, like, you see how this works out? It's a nice little thing. And I mention that as well, because once again, this kind of is the beginning of Dukat, as I would say it, becoming a real character. At least intentionally. I mentioned Hudson... Uh, last week, I think. It wasn't actually last week for me. In fact, it was a couple months ago. I've been working on uh, Friday stuff for the last couple of months. So this is my first coming back to DS9 for a while. Um, I'm pretty sure I mentioned Hudson last time, but I want to mention him again because his friendship and the chemistry he has with... Uh, that's actually the wrong word. There's a lot of natural f uh, camaraderie between him and Cisco. But I say I don't want to call it chemistry because actually there's a lot of scenes between the two where they don't have particularly good chemistry at all. It's kind of weird and it feels awkward. Um, and I, I feel that's a lam lamentable thing because what I see here is a circumstance which could have been awesome. This could have been a Civil War type story. I, d I don't mean as in the Federation fighting itself. I mean a philosophical internecine conflict. The kind of thing that pits brother against brother. The kind of thing where someone who is legitimately good friends with someone else philosophically disagrees with that person. And this leads to conflict between the two factions. Now, usually a civil war is more of a political affair than an ideological one, but you get how that could work. In fact, an ideological civil war is going to be far more damaging and far more violent overall than a purely political one. Because in general, if you are really believing in, to use the direct example, the Maquis cause, you're probably going to fight more than, I've been ordered to fight these people because this person wants to take over this section of the country, or whatever, right? This isn't a succession crisis. And there's a lot of potential in that, because constantly, throughout the entire episode, up until the second to last scene, uh, Hudson and Cisco 
speak of each other in friendly terms, refuse to actively hurt each other. Hudson flat out says, tell Starfleet to send someone else next time. This doesn't feel right fighting you. And that could have had so much more power than it actually gets across. In fact, it feels very flat, if I might be so bold. It also leads to something else. So originally, uh, Hudson was supposed to die, and then they changed their minds, and by the time they changed their minds, they saw, you know, they saw the dailies, which is basically the, the rough draft thing, and were like, hey, oh crap, this doesn't work, he should have died. And I agree, Hudson should have died. It would have added tremendous pathos to the, basically the generation of the Maquis. It would have made the Maquis a far more personal thing for Cisco, which is something they'll do later. But more importantly, it would have had some kind of actual impact from a plot perspective. Because ultimately, nothing is resolved in this episode. Towards the end of the episode, Cisco flat out says, I wonder, you know, they say, you stopped a war, did I? Or did I only delay the inevitable? Uh, Mr. Cisco, I, please, I want to address you specifically for a moment. Uh, Commander Cisco, excuse me, I should be more formal. Commander Cisco, let me assure you with 100% certainty that you have, in fact, delayed the inevitable. This is an untenable situation that you did not repair. There is, you're in a sub underwater which is leaking from 15 different spots, and you held a hand up over one of those spots. Congratulations! You have stalled the inevitable! But that sub is still sinking! <laughs> right? And that's one of the reasons why this episode just frustrates me in a weird way. It feels like it just kind of sits there and exists. Because they didn't really know what to do with the Maquis. Now that part is theory. I don't know if that's true. But I've had that opinion for many years. Especially, you know, seeing what ended up happening on Voyager. Anyways, moving on. Um, so... Hudson has this line I really like. The Federation believes it can solve any problem with a treaty. That is so damn true. Like, I'm sorry. Again, adding more nuance to the Federation doesn't mean death, dark, doom, darkier, grittier, no parents. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Instead, it means adding more layers to them. The naivete, the almost blind... Uh, hopefulness of the Federation makes a lot of sense, especially given what I've already said over on the TNG stuff, which I think you're going to be seeing when we get to Season 3, which is the current era of the Federation. Now, th this is kind of weird because I mentioned that back in Season 3 TNG. This is obviously much later in TNG's history, but this is the this is basically the next era after that. This is the post-Wolf Wolf 359 era. This is, we've gone past the winds of change, and the Federation is now desperate, desperately clinging to whatever it can and desperately trying to avoid any kind of warfare, any kind of warfare. Uh, appeasement. The Federation is in a state of appeasement. They will do whatever they have to do, let people walk all over them as long as they don't have to go to war, because holy crap, Wolf 359 beat the ever-living stuffing out of us. And while there are, of course, plans and works in, in development right now to refill the fleet, basically building tons upon tons of ships and re revitalizing the, the Starfleet's military side of things, they still, the Federation specifically, still has a very demonstrable approach to things that is basically, yeah, we're okay with it. And nowhere is that a more apparent, apparent in this episode. Sorry, I'm stuttering about my words today. I'm in a lot of pain. Please forgive me. Nowhere is that more apparent than in Admiral Nechev. Hang on. There we go. 
got to spit every time you say that name because I hate Admiral Nechev. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Admiral Nechev is awful. Actually, quick side note, if I may. My notes literally say Nechev spit. That's exactly what that says right there, word for word. So the Maquis are Federation citizens. That's already a problem. The fact that these people are officially Federation citizens left in a demilitarized zone who are actively being poisoned by Cardassians and attacked and sabotaged and all of that other kind of fun stuff. That's a... Yeah, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> that's so many levels of problem, I can't even uh, address it. But to get back to Necheyev, for a moment, she leans hard on Cisco to resolve this situation now. This has to be resolved. Get to the Maquis, who are a bunch of thugs who don't matter. Get them to resolve this. We don't want a war with the Cardassians. We don't want a war with the Cardassians. Blah, blah, blah. It makes me wonder. I mean, obviously, I know the history of Star Trek, but it, it, it makes me wonder if, at this point in time, the writers were thinking that the Federation had never had, shall we say, uh, disagreeing forces within their own people before, right? No revolutionaries, no actual terrorists, no um, protesters, you know, to, to go on a more milder side of things. No people of disagreement or whatever. The Maquis are like, it feels in many ways that the Maquis are the first real example of Starfleet, excuse me, the Federation having to deal with people who don't step in line. It's just weird. What do we do about these people? Right? <laughs> How do we deal? Yeah, they'll be fine. It'll be fine. But I mention this as well because Necheyev leans very hard on Sisko and then offers him nothing. That is pretty much the definition of being a bad boss, by the way. I want you to deal with this difficult problem, but I'm not going to give you any tools or resources to deal with that problem. Bye. Like, that is straight up 101 villainy right there. That's the kind of thing I would expect a, a cartoon villain to do to their subordinates. I demand that you take care of this particular problem and this particular you know difficulty with the hero, and you have to do it by tomorrow. Oh, I'll just need these ships. No, you won't have any ships. They'll be over here. What? What? It, I know, I know, I know. I've already talked about the fact that, that for some reason DS9 just doesn't have any proper Starfleet support. But why do they not give him any kind of Starfleet support? He goes out there with three runabouts. That's pathetic. The only reason they win this encounter is because the enemy only had two ships, which is also pathetic. What? That boggles my mind that you can't leave a single, I don't know, Excelsior? Or a Nebula? Something. Anything. Christ. I know, I know, there's plenty of reasons why this could be made sense, and it could be made sense. Obviously, you know, the budget issues and feasibility of the show are the real reasons that they didn't have anything bigger here. But from an in-character perspective, this is insane. We, we want to do everything possible to ensure that we don't go to war. Now, here's three bits of string and a paperclip. Go to it! <laughs> anyways, anyways. The next thing, though. At one point in time... Uh, Cisco says, you know, she says, your job is to, to support the treaty at all, at all costs, no matter what it takes. And Cisco says, even if the Cardassians aren't obeying the treaty, even if the Cardassians are already violating the peace, to which her response is not to answer, 
Do you have any evidence of that? Which might be useful. Because they, remember, the Federation, for all its many, many flaws, is a very political organization. And if they had actual evidence of the Cardassians violating their peace agreement, then they could use that to push them politically and diplomatically into getting out of the neutral zone. But no, or not the neutral zone, excuse me, the demilitarized zone. But that's not what she says. She does not say, wait, the Cardassians have been violating the treaty? We'll have to bring in some military uh, arrangements immediately to ensure that they realize we're taking this very seriously. She doesn't say, we'll have to contact other nations in order to try and see if anything... She doesn't do anything that would make any kind of sense of any way, shape, or form. What she says, and I wrote it down word for word, is, are you questioning Federation policy, Commander? At which point, Cisco suddenly slaps her so hard she goes through the bulkhead into the sun and it's supernovas. I can dream. So then the very next person who walks into the room, Cisco rages at. And I love that scene. Because it's it you could really just feel all of Cisco's frustration and anger and aggravation as he just pours it out at Kira. Just Grah. And then of course. He gives the speech, which I'm going to share with you because I have to. On Earth, there is no poverty, no crime, no war. You look out the window of Starfleet headquarters and you see paradise. Well, it's easy to be a saint in paradise, but the Maquis do not live in paradise. Out there in the demilitarized zone, all the problems haven't been solved yet. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Angry, scared, determined people who are going to do whatever it takes to survive, whether it meets with Federation approval or not. That speech right there is why I like this episode. Even though it is kind of an eh episode, if I'm being honest, it is not that great of an episode. But that speech, and something later I'll get to, really helped this thing shine. Because it's true. One of the key integral parts of world building to Star Trek, which Star Trek doesn't do nearly as much of as it should, is that Earth is a paradise. It is a solved equation. They have infinite resources, no crime, no poverty, no sickness, no war. Every issue, societally, economically, culturally, it's all solved there. And the further away you get from Earth, it's really actually Earth and Vulcan, if we're being honest with ourselves, but the two are very close to each other in stellar terms. The further away you get from the Federation core, the less that is true. And that right there adds a wonderful layer of believability and, dare I say, realism to Star Trek. Having that, shall we call it, a consequence of the Federation's near-rampant expansion. One of the things we've been covering so much in Season 2 and in Season 3 of TNG is colonies, colonies, colonies. About how much the Federation is just stretching out more and more and more into more territory. It's sending the dandelions into the winds, so to speak. This kind of problem with the Maquis and this treaty and these people who don't have is exactly the kind of problem that is a direct consequence of that policy. And I like that. So... John Shuck, I, I know this is going to sound weird, but John Shuck plays Legate Parn. Uh, I only mention that because it was good to see him again. I actually like him in several different works. He's probably most famous in Star Trek circles for playing the obstinate Klingon ambassador over in the Star Trek movies. He's in several of the movies. Um, 
And I do, <laughs> I do like that. He's in Star Trek four and six at the very least. I'm not sure which other ones off the top of my head. Um, but I like how he comes out there, and he and the Cardassian official government response pins all of the blame on Dukat and just hangs him out to dry. Now, I found that very interesting. And, of course, Cisco, who has a brain, is paying attention to this and says, yep, that's all I needed to hear, because that means the official military command is, officially, sending weapons into the DMZ, arming their own colonists, and let's just call it what it is, basically engaging in state-sponsored terrorism against the Federation colonists in the DMZ. The one thing that doesn't quite make sense about all of this is why. Like, I kind of talked about that before, but there's not a lot of gains to be had from specifically taking this action in such an official sense, unless you consider the political ramifications I talked about last time, which I'm not going to recover here. I don't want to bore you. Um, but I, I found myself thinking about that. They are so insistent upon this. They have absolutely no intention of ceasing or desisting in this matter. Is it purely about political gains? I don't know. Anyways, uh, so this is my next note here. I love how difficult it is for uh, Sokova? Sakona. I wrote down her name. Uh, the Vulcan woman to mind meld with Dukat. That makes perfect sense to me. In my opinion, too often fiction in general, uh, especially fantasy fiction, but sci-fi falls into this trap too, fiction in general has this problem where you know, person has an ability, and that ability just works 100% of the time. And it's just, I have the ability to read minds. To me, it makes more sense that the Vulcans have the ability to read minds, but they have to get to the mind to read it. They have to understand the information they're seeing. Basically, it takes a degree of skill and, and you know, uh, precision in order to actually do anything with this power. If they, in other words, to, to borrow a quote from a webcomic of all things, credit if you recognize the webcomic, if you're going to have a battle of wills with someone, make sure you're the stronger will. And I love how she, the, the acting really helps sell the scene, because she's struggling and just, my mind, your mind. You know, she's just barely gritting her teeth about this, and Dukat is perfectly still, calm, and peaceful. That right there, as weird as this sounds, is probably one of the better character moments for Dukat for me in the whole series. Because what we see there is the kind of precise, self-controlled mind Dukat really has. That he is able to be capable of that level of self-control. That's impressive. And I would argue, this is purely based on uh, opinion, and I want to stress that, that Dukat is probably one of the more self-disciplined Cardassians that we encounter throughout the course of the series, and thus helping to explain one of the reasons why he ends up being such a recurring character, because he's basically better, if you follow me. And he's just got the better mind that so many of the others do. And of course, he is incredibly pragmatic. He is more or less literally the one who starts the fight when Cisco shows up and encourages them to shoot them all. Uh, he does this later as well. Nevertheless, I do love a bit. I'm going to skip ahead here because I want to also mention in line with this, there's a later scene when he has to talk down the Tekarites or whatever. I forget their name and I didn't write it down. Uh, he has to talk down the ship. He says, so we fire there, we destroy the bridge and we win. And all of them say, no, that's horrible. We'll try talking. 
What I love about that scene is that we see the Cardassian mindset, which is morally repugnant, basically, and we see the Federation mindset, which is horribly naive. Now, both of these are wrong in their own different ways. His is wrong from a you know, decency perspective, and theirs is wrong from a getting results perspective. What I love about that is Dukat finds the middle ground. He talks his way into that other ship and does so very expertly. It's a great scene. I love the way he just slams, basically slams the book on the guy's face. You're going you're gonna to accept this or this is going to go very, very, very badly for you. He's like, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> stop counting, stop counting, please. I love that. He doesn't give an inch. And it's probably the first time we see that kind of middle ground between these two philosophies. Something we'll be seeing in the future, too. But rewinding a bit. Ducat tends to have a little bit of a facade most of the time. And yet, when Sisko confronts him and says, Oh, they all, the, the, you know, the Central Command all said you did it. Ducat acts a little, like, it, it, you could tell it just kind of gets him across the knees. Now, the funny thing is, it's not surprising to him that the Cardassians would do this. What's surprising to him is that he wasn't informed. His quote says it all, and I wrote it down. They didn't bother to tell me. It's the first time ever that Ducat lowers his personal mask in the whole series so far. And we see just a little bit of that, of what I would argue is the real person under that. The person who's just... Just can't quite comprehend that. You know, he's got so much self-importance going on, and so much uh, perspective. I, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this character moment for Ducat and Ducat in general in this episode. Let's let's keep the future stuff out of it for the moment, um, because I've heard so many different interpretations of Ducat over the years, and I would love to hear your guys'. I've I've, I've been enjoying uh, reading your comments as we go through this, so please please keep it coming. Um, <clears throat> as long as you don't tell me I hate Voyager, I'm tired of those. <laughs> uh, so he he drops that and he's just oh you could just tell how much that hits him and there's no fake bravado there's no oh, I am super awesome and completely on top of everything he, there's just this moment of vulnerability I also love the simple forgive the inaccurate term humanism of him sitting down enjoying a good meal after a hard day because I agree a nice meal after a hard day is awesome and a great way to relax and feel better about things. As I've said many times, food is one of the truly, truly few universal constants, even in fiction, and it's always just nice to see a story use that properly. So, he handles the ship, as I mentioned earlier. There's also, when we sh uh, there's also this thing with Quark and Sakona. I wish I had more to say about that scene, other than that it's great. Quark uses economic theory to outlogic a Vulcan terrorist. Eh, terrorist is actually a wrong term. I don't want to misuse that word. A Vulcan revolutionary. That's a better word. I like that. I like that a lot. Because, A, too often the Ferengi are portrayed as stupid. Like, the levels of of ridiculous nonsense that the Ferengi have been portrayed as, especially over in TNG, has been, we care about money, and we're incredibly stupid about it. Like, they have no idea how to actually function economically. DS9, of course, will can 
and has and will continue to uh, flesh out the Ferengi more. So there's Ferengi who actually have brains. Zek is probably one of my favorite examples of this. The man, despite all of his presentation, despite all of his, you know, <laughs> is probably one of the most brilliant Ferengi we ever encounter, and he shows this many times. Anyways, so his usage of proper economic theory makes a lot of sense, because basically he boils down matters of state into an economic principle, which makes sense because it can and has been argued that economic principle applies to every social construct that exists. No, really. Now, whether that's true or not is debatable. I myself have had arguments about, no, I shouldn't say argue, debates about that very topic uh, many times. But when it comes to something like this, you desire peaceful co cooperation or segregation in your current existence. Basically, the Maquis really want to be left alone. The main reason they've started taking up arms and fighting isn't because, oh, we want to kill all Cardassians, or excuse me, Cardis. It's because the Cardis have already been killing them, have already been arming their own people against them, have already been sabotaging their food replicators, etc. This is a defensive action. Peace is actually what they want, ironically enough. So if we could arrange a circumstance where we could force a peace onto the Cardassian people and cut off the supplies of weapons, then this could work. And so thus we now have, it's not really a commodity, it's more like a service, but you know we have a commodity that we desire, that you have. How do we trade for this? Well, given the circumstances, and he does it, he does it wonderfully. And I love that scene. Um... So then the last part of the episode, I don't really have a lot to say about. Not really. Um, they send the runabouts to stop the Maquis. I've already commented how stupid that is. And there's also a Klingon amongst the Maquis. Now, I, only, I know that's a weird thing to comment on, but she gets a few seconds of very clear FaceTime on the camera. Generally, as a director or as a writer, you know, basically as any kind of person involved in creating the show, you do those kind of things on purpose. Those things usually don't just happen by accident. And I only mention that because I find myself wondering if they were establishing that Klingons are involved in the Maquis early in order to help explain Bellana Taurus. Basically establishing that the Maquis are multiracial. Just the food for thought. So then there's the Hudson's death thing. I kind of already commented on that. But really that final battle, the final action sequence, I don't have much to say about it. Hudson will never be seen again on this show. He will be killed off camera. I, I don't feel like that's a spoiler. That doesn't even happen for a very long time. I feel like his death should have happened right here on camera, probably as a result of an accident. Maybe not Ducat doing it, but, you know, because Lord knows Ducat was like, fire! But, you know, something, some kind of conflict or some kind of fighting, and, and beam aboard, we can't get you through the scene! And then Sisko just sees his friend destroyed and is shocked. The Maquis have lost their leader, which leaves them dangerous and uh, angry, vengeful. Sisko has lost his friend. And what have we gotten out of it? Peace? Yeah, because this problem's going away. I did enjoy this episode despite its many flaws. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on it. I'll see you guys next time.